0: Realm Presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 24.
1: Three. When Francis woke again, the infirmary was lit for morning, and Sansoni was still there. She was standing by the door now, leaning as though she had only paused there for a moment. The nurse came in with Francis's breakfast and left without the least flicker that he had noticed anyone else in the room. When they were alone again, Sansoni spoke, I know you know where they are. I wouldn't tell you if I did, Frances said it, but she did not feel in the least bit brave. I didn't ask you to tell me, Sansoni said. She stared openly at Frances, not even making a pretense of avoiding the rumpled area under the blanket where her legs should have been. Frances imagined she could feel the weight of her gaze and something under the blanket shifted. She wanted to throw up as she felt cool sheets slide over something that was, and at the same time, definitely was not, her skin. I imagine that if they're doing what I think they are, the signs of their location will be more than obvious in the next few hours. Something that should have occurred to Fox if he had given the matter a moment's thought. Are you going to tell him? Francis asked. No, said Sansoni. Why not? Asked Francis. She had expected the beginning of a negotiation, not whatever this was. Sansoni did not answer immediately. Instead, she said, did you know that the position of certain members of the society is that grace should officially be classified as church property? A useful tool, certainly, but not quite a person anymore. Her eyes slid meaningfully to the bottom half of Francis's bed. Is that a threat? asked Francis. Sansoni shook her head, merely an observation. And I'm supposed to believe you're telling me this out of the goodness of your heart? Believe what you like, said Sansoni. Leadership is preoccupied at the moment, but I think you'll find that people can believe all kinds of things. She was gone before Francis could muster a reply. Liam didn't say much as they left the sewers behind and Sal didn't push him. The first stop was at the back door of a row house a few blocks from his bolt hole. A minute's pounding on the door brought forth a bleary-eyed man with enough of a family resemblance to Liam that Sal guessed he was one of the older brothers he had occasionally mentioned, at least until they spoke to each other. Fuck you doing here. Your kid's still got that old laptop I lent them. Yeah. I need it back. Why? Because it's an emergency and I kicked my other one to bits. You're dead, what? Oh, and I need to borrow the car. The man in the house blinked, then he looked from Liam to Sal and back again. No word for a year, and then you turn up at this hour. Fuck what you need. He made to slam the door in their faces, but Liam planted one of his steel toes in the way, jamming it open. This triggered another round of swearing on both sides. Sal was about to quietly suggest that maybe they find another place to resupply when Liam's brother threw up his hands, muttered fuck a few more times, and released the door, allowing them into the kitchen. He disappeared upstairs with more muttering while Liam helped himself to coffee. That's Michael he explained, as though this encounter had gone exactly as he had expected. Doesn't seem like he's your biggest fan. I fell off the grid for years and took up a job on the continent. He has to give me some shit when I show up asking for favors. But he'll help. Liam's expression as he handed her a mug of coffee was difficult to parse. Did you ever turn down your little brother when he was in trouble and knocking on your door? Since they both knew the answer to that, Sal didn't reply, keeping her eyes on her coffee until Michael returned with the requested computer and car keys. Once they were on the road headed out of the city, Sal found the news on the radio. Not hard, since every station was being interrupted with breaking reports of the strange color of the sky. No one had an explanation, but that didn't stop local politicians and scientists from putting forward theories that ranged from global warming to some kind of massive art installation. Liam grunted at that. That's a new one. Maybe Sansoni should try using it as a cover story sometime. That woman would lie to Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. She doesn't need any new ideas. A man on the radio vigorously opposed to public arts funding had left off about the sky and was now going on about the modern statuary recently placed at the airport. Sal took this as a sign that there wasn't anything new to report. She snapped off the radio, and together they sank into quiet, broken only by the rattling of the ancient Skoda. All in all, Hilary Sansoni was not surprised when Fox appeared in her office a few hours after she had left Francis' bedside. What are you playing at, Sansoni? He asked. He had entered without invitation and closed the door behind him without permission. It was the sort of blunt power play that she expected of him, and she supposed it was reassuring when people lived up to their habits. Had Fox suddenly tried to turn subtle, she would have worried. However, since Sansoni saw no need to share her thoughts on this point, she merely set aside her work and said, that's the wrong question. Is it? He said. Yes, I'm not playing at anything. Fox snorted. You, on the other hand, with Julie out of consideration, you're the next logical choice for Cardinal. Since you have made no secret of the fact that you want the job, I have to assume you're here looking for my support, unless you decided to barge into my office in a clumsy attempt to put me off balance. Fox scowled at her. You think you're so smart? Yes, she said. I also think you're smart enough to know that if you're going to head the society, you'll need the cooperation of those you wish to lead. The direct approach is fine for Shah and her people. Even if they don't always like you, they respect the chain of command. On the other hand, you badgering poor Francis isn't going to win you any points with Asante or with me. What makes you think I need to win any points with you? If you didn't want something from me, you wouldn't be in my office, she pointed out. You aren't a politician, so my guess is you've decided to recruit one at need, rather than twist yourself into unnatural shapes to become one. Which would be flattering, but you seem to have forgotten that this is a situation in which you need me more than I need you. Angling for a promotion yourself, then, Fox asked. Don't be absurd. I'm well aware of the limits on my avenues of advancement within the church. Just as well I didn't join the society for a red hat and a fancy title. Fox's eyes narrowed in calculation. And why did you join? he asked. That, said Sansoni, is the correct question. Four. You set up your former headquarters at an abandoned amusement park? asked Sal. Granted, amusement park was a bit of a stretch for the converted warehouse space. The place looked like it hadn't been open for at least 15 years, but even in its heyday, she doubted that lucky, fun land with its sparsely filled arcade, obviously warped bowling alley, and tiny roller rink had been much of a draw. As for the area tucked off in the corner behind the black walls, accented with fluorescent painted lines, is that a laser tag arena? Sal asked. Liam barely looked up from his newly requisitioned laptop, its shell covered in stickers that had been cut and pasted together to portray an epic battle between unicorn-riding robots and blaster-wielding princesses. Yep, he said. Do I want to know why you had the keys to this place? Michael and some of his buddies set it up back in the 90s. As a front? Liam gave her a withering look. Does it look like a front? Sal glanced up at the ceiling a good 40 feet above them. From the water stains on the concrete floor, she was faintly surprised she couldn't see pink-tinged daylight. At least she hoped those were water stains. Yes, she said. Liam didn't bother to respond, and a few seconds later, the screech of a dial-up modem connecting made Sal jump. What the hell? Liam grinned as he killed the volume on his speakers. Good times. Don't tell me you're going to hack into the network's virtual space over a phone line. A snort, god no. Then what's the plan? Lure Christina here and then make that noise at her until she agrees to give up her quest to network the human race into a giant server farm? You're thinking of the Matrix. Whatever. As they talked, Liam had not stopped typing. He now hit enter with a flourish. Every time we've met the network, we've been playing on their turf or on ground that they chose. The Night Market, the Silk Road, Middle Coombe. It's time for us to turn the tables. Is this the kind of plan that Asante would tell us was extremely ill-advised? Probably. Did you just send out a signal that Christina will be sure to notice, which will then basically dare her to come and find us? Damn straight, said Liam. Sal took this in. How long do you guess we have before she gets here? About an hour, maybe more with traffic. Time to set up some surprises? Liam smiled. It's like you know me. The coordinates that Liam had pulled out of the network's network led Asante, Grace, and Manchu to a pack-and-mail shop in the city center. It was the kind of small business that provided half a dozen different services, from copies to phone cards, all advertised on posters that papered the front windows and served to completely obscure the view into the shop from the street. Manchu tried to keep an eye on the customers, but no one seemed to be going in and out. He wondered if there was some kind of magic or technology at work that allowed the location to go unnoticed by passersby. More likely, it was just the kind of shop that no one bothered to visit. Lacking a view in the front, Grace said go to Allie to do some quick reconnaissance. And Menchu waited, knowing he said go to until she was in sight again. She's going to be fine, said Asante, breaking Menchu's concentration. We can't take that for granted. And Just because it's hard for her to get hurt doesn't mean- Asante interrupted. I meant her candle. She's going to be fine. We're going to find a way to turn her back. After every terrible thing we've seen magic do, how can you be so optimistic? I've seen people do more evil than demons, and no one's arguing we get rid of people, Asante pointed out. People do good as well as evil. Can you say that for magic? Asante shrugged. Grace would have been dead from time, malice, or accident if she didn't have her candle, she pointed out. And I think she's done some good in the world. Manchu digested this. Did you notice that she didn't bring a book this trip? Asanti frowned, she was reading on the plane. She was staring at the book and occasionally turning pages. Then she left it behind on her seat. While you and Leon were working earlier, she wasn't even pretending. I'm worried about her, Manchu admitted. He went back to watching the shop. A young mother with a stroller stopped in front of the windows to adjust her baby's blanket. Shifting the blanket caused the baby to lose its pacifier and it sent up a thin wail. Manchu said, I found an old photo that had her candle in it. Did you know it's lost close to half its length since we found her? Asante shook her head. I knew it must have diminished, but no, I hadn't realized. And what kind of a life does she have, going from mission to mission, one day off per year, to do with as she pleases? She, Asante began, she's a grown woman and she can hear you, said Grace, swinging down from the fire escape to land lightly on the sidewalk beside them. Manchu could see that Grace wasn't happy. How much of that were you listening to? He asked. How much of my future were the two of you planning on working out between yourselves before you asked my opinion? Grace, said Asante. She was cut off by a screech of brakes at the intersection. The traffic lights at the corner had all gone red. No, all of the traffic lights in all directions had turned red. From the cacophony rising from the surrounding streets, it sounded as though the entire city had become instantly gridlocked. Good God, said Menchu. Is that the network? A bus was stopped mid-block in front of them. The electronic destination board read, Christina, come and get me. I'm thinking not, said Asante. Off Manchu's look, she added, you did tell Liam to use his initiative. The front door of the shop across the street flew open. The young mother barely snatched her now screaming baby out of the way as half a dozen programmers streamed out. Christina was at the head of the line. How are they going to come and get anyone with traffic at a complete standstill? Grace asked. One of the networkers unlocked a metal rolling door heretofore concealed under several layers of advertisements and band posters to reveal half a dozen mopeds. Christina hopped on one and took off, weaving through the stopped traffic. Manchu and the others quickly ducked out of sight as the rest followed her. Manchu looked back out of the alley. The mother and her baby had moved on. Anyone else inside? He said. Should be, two. Grace said, give me five minutes before you come in. She was gone before Minshew or Asante had time to say a word.
0: We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that if exposed would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seehorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale.
1: You can eat it, or if someone hits you,
0: you can put it on your cut.
1: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
0: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It was a simple matter for Grace to pick the lock on the door to the network shop front. It was equally easy for her to kick the man they had left behind on guard into unconsciousness, which she wished she could take as a compliment to her skills, but the man was clearly incapable of defending anything more important than a bag of Cheetos. He barely even moved to defend himself when she walked in, underestimating her as a threat in spite of the fact that she had just come in through a locked door without a key and should therefore have been assumed to have hostile intent. People see a short girl and they assume I'm not going to kick their asses, she thought with a sigh. Can't they at least make this interesting? Can't someone not be predictable for... Which was when the second network goon snuck up behind Grace and nailed her with a taser. Grace's knees went out. She was falling toward the floor. You idiot, you knew there was a second one. And then there was a clanging sound, the burn of electricity stopped, and the network minion hit the ground beside her. As soon as Grace could convince her muscles to listen, she rolled to her feet to find Manchu and Asanti standing in the doorway. Manchu was holding a tire iron. Grace blinked in surprise, then scowled. That wasn't five minutes. You might be older than both of us, said Asanti, but we do outrank you. Besides, added Menchu, why should you always get to have all the fun? Grace didn't have anything to say to that, so she kept frowning. Come on, Menchu held out a hand. It's time to stop the network. Back at Lucky Funland, Sal and Liam paused in their preparations to watch the local news on the ancient TV, still mounted and miraculously still working, behind the snack bar. The coverage was mostly focused on the pink sky and citywide gridlock, but a ticker at the bottom of the screen read, who is Christina? Well, said Sal, I think we got her attention. When Francis heard the door open, she didn't bother to turn her head and look. If Sansoni had come with more helpful observations, she had no desire to hear them, and most of the medical staff seemed happier when she didn't try to make eye contact. The click of cold metal against her wrist, however, snapped Francis's head around, and she discovered not a nurse, but a member of the Vatican's security team. What are you doing? She demanded. The man didn't answer. He merely walked around to the other side of her bed, where he took her other wrist and secured it to the opposite bed rail. But when he moved, it allowed Francis to see the man who stood behind him, Monsignor Fox. Francis Haddad, he intoned. Under the authority of His Holiness the Pope, and by virtue of my officer as protector of the Societus Librorum Occultorum, it is my duty to place you under detention. All of Francis's frustration and boredom transformed into impotent anger. What? Why? Fox didn't even bother to fake a smile. For your own protection and that of those around you. You can't do this. Until such time as a new cardinal can be named, the society is in a state of emergency. At such times, I am authorized to do whatever I deem necessary to safeguard the security of the society, its archives, and its personnel. He tossed a letter onto her bedside table. She could see the seal at the bottom, but it was out of reach of her shackled hand. Look it up, he said, and turned away. Am I still considered personnel or just a threat? France called after Fox's retreating form. He ignored her. They didn't bother to leave a guard outside her door. She had no legs and she was shackled to her bed. Where was she gonna go? Hours passed. Frances memorized the ceiling above her head. She counted all the bumps in the plaster and the fringes that hung from the shade of her bedside lamp. Periodically, someone would come in to check her sugar or adjust something or take note of something else, but she was past caring. A priest came in and prayed over her, then had a whispered conversation with her doctor about spiritual ramifications of various surgical options. They didn't even try to include her in the conversation. Sansone's prophecy was already coming true. First she was a freak, and now they believe she was a thing. You'll find that people can believe all kinds of things, That's what Sansoni had said, but why had she said it? Did Francis care what the society believed? At some level, she had to respect an organization that had compiled a resource like the archives, but that didn't mean she thought the society or the church was infallible. For centuries, the Vatican had believed that the sun went around the earth. They'd eventually admitted that was a mistake, but she suspected it had been scant comfort to Galileo. The society still believed that they could stop the rising tide of magic by locking it away and ignoring it. Maybe the turn on that topic would come faster, maybe not. Fox had already demonstrated what he believed about Francis. Francis looked down at where her legs had been. She actually hadn't seen herself since she'd first woken up in the Vatican hospital, and that had been barely a glimpse. But now she needed to know what she had become. She needed to know what she believed. Of course, now her wrists were shackled to the bed and she couldn't lift the blanket, not with her hands anyway. When she tried to move her legs, what had been her legs, she found that she didn't have a lot of fine control. Maybe that would come later, when every signal her nerves were sending wasn't new and strange. Finally, after several minutes of hard work, a tentacle emerged from one side of the blanket. Frances lifted it toward her hand so she could feel it. It was warm, which she hadn't expected, but of course she was still warm-blooded, so it made sense. It was also soft. And strong, she realized as she wrapped it around her fingers. She squeezed one of the bed rails experimentally and noticed it was slightly bent when she pulled away. She looked at where she was shackled to the bed, looked at the tent, it looked at herself. She pulled at the rail again. She would need time to plan her escape if she didn't want to be found exhausted on the stairs as soon as she left her room. But as Sansoni had said, the leadership was distracted she would have a little time to decide her destiny for herself. Inside the copy shop, Basanti took a large and ancient-looking leather-bound volume out of her satchel and placed it carefully on top of the counter. She then removed several glass vials and laid them alongside the book. Manchu paused in his search to watch. What are those? he asked. Since we've begun using magic, not just suppressing it, I've expanded my list of standard supplies. You're intending to use magic? Asante treated him to a withering stare. We came here to destroy the network's bookmaking capabilities, she said. Do you think we were just going to throw a shroud over the problem and that would be it? She turned back to the counter and unstoppered a vial, tapping a ring of gray powder into a circle around the book. Besides, she continued, the network is trying to establish a global hive mind. Whatever they've constructed to facilitate that, we can't bring it back to Rome and lock it up. Surely you knew that when we came here. Would have if you thought to share your plans with me before this instant. I don't report to you, said Asanti. I know, said Menchu, but we used to be friends. Asante paused and looked at him. Are you upset that I'm planning to use magic, or upset that I didn't tell you beforehand? Because if it's the former, I'm going to point out all the times we've used magic at your suggestion in the last two years. And if it's the latter, then maybe now isn't the best moment for us to stop and deal with your hurt feelings. Liam and Sal have distracted Christina, but we do not have unlimited time. Manchu gaped. When the silence between them became unbearable, Grace, who had been doing her best to pointedly ignore their little spat, finally looked up from her search and noticed the book Asante had laid on the counter. Is that the lost folio? She asked. Manchu turned to Grace in surprise. You recognize it? I was stuck in the archives without a book once and started reading accounts from the chronicles of the society, she said. Asante blinked. How can you be stuck in the archives without a- No, never mind, not important. Yes, it is the lost folio. It turns out that it wasn't lost, just chained inside a locked box bolted to a shelf in the fifth vault. For all that they held the title of archivist, some of my predecessors were woefully lax about their cataloging. And the chain and the locked box inside the vault did not strike you as a sign you shouldn't put it in your carry-on? Asked Manchu. How did you find it? Asked Grace. Asante shrugged. I'm the archivist. It's my job. It seemed like the sort of thing we might be glad to have someday. Do I even want to know what it was made for? Menchu asked. It doesn't contain a demon, if that's what you're worried about, said Asante. It's a spell book, no more dangerous than a list of recipes. I thought it was originally taken from a wizard who was trying to sink Sri Lanka, said Grace. Asante frowned. That account was almost certainly exaggerated and definitely written years after the fact. By a member of the team sent to retrieve the book, said Grace. Sri Lanka is still there, isn't it, Asanti demanded. Manchu sighed. Was he just upset because Asanti hadn't kept him in the loop? He honestly wasn't sure, but regardless, she was right that now was not the time to be dwelling on his own bruised ego, and the fact that no amount of his displeasure was going to send the thing back to the archives where it belonged. What are you planning to do with it, asked Manchu. The shroud suppresses magic when wrapped completely around the book. But we know that it doesn't just work for books, else Liam wouldn't have been able to use it to successfully neutralize the magical listening device Team 2 planted in the archives last year. There's a spell in the folio that should serve to temporarily link me to the shroud, allowing me to direct its neutralizing capabilities. Asante's tone was perfectly dry, as she added, on the chance that a bookmaking operation is too large to wrap. That last dig had been unnecessary, in Menchu's opinion, but just because Asante wanted to pick a fight didn't mean he had to give it to her. At least her plan hadn't been, in case of emergency, sink Ireland. He hoped she knew what she was doing. Grace was displeased to find that looking for a book in the middle of a shop full of paper was just as annoying as she thought it would be. She was checking the trays of a bank of copiers behind the counter when she discovered that the drawers in one of them were stuck. That was odd. Grace put her hand on the machine. It hummed, warm beneath her fingers. Grace slipped around behind the machine to unplug it. The plug was also stuck fast. Grace pulled again harder. When the cord came loose from the wall, it snapped and writhed like a live thing between her hands. With some difficulty, Grace wrestled it into a knot. It was difficult enough that by the time she was finished, she took a brief pause to get her breath back. When she looked up, Manchu and Asante were staring at her. No, they were staring at the copy machine, which was still warm and humming and now pulsing with a distinctly demonic glow. Manchu cleared his throat. I uh, think we found out how the network is making books. Lucky Funland may have, at some point in its history, been fun. Standing next to Liam on the deck of the abandoned bowling alley as the door burst in, admitting Christina and half a dozen network types, Sal hoped that it was still at least a little bit lucky. Sal hadn't seen Christina in person since their encounter at the server farm in Antakya, but although she had been distracted at the time, she was pretty sure that the unearthly green glow emanating from Christina's body was new. As she and her people crossed the threshold, Liam triggered an activator in his pocket, and their guests were greeted by an electrified net rigged to fall from the rafters. Christina looked up as it fell, and with a flick of her wrist sent the tangled mess flying toward Liam and Sal. Sal tucked and rolled, coming up behind a scoring desk, where Liam joined her a heartbeat later. What the hell was that? hissed Sal. Liam swore quietly. She's got a demon. In the wavering half light of the empty bowling alley, Christina smiled. No, Liam. She called back. I have your demon. Five. Father Mancini looked from grace, still holding the writhing power cord, to the copy machine that pulsed with demonic light. The network was devoted to the marriage of technology and magic. Of course they would put the ability to write demonic books into a copy machine. The idea that the network was writing books was bad enough, but that machine... Are they replicating demons? He cleared his throat. "Santi," Yes? One look at her face, and he knew that his old friend's thoughts were close companions to his own. Offering a silent prayer that he was making the right decision, Manchu gave Asanti one tight nod. Do what you have to do. Shut it down. Asanti took the shroud and laid it on top of the machine. She consulted a page in the lost folio and sprinkled the contents of several vials onto the shroud, chanting as she did so. The pulsing glow of the machine increased. Be ready, Asanti said, lifting the cover. There may be defenses that will. The instant the cover was up, every loose object in the shop lifted into the air and rushed toward the copier as though Asante had opened a black hole. Sal watched Liam go even more pale than normal as Christina's words sank in. He looked like he wanted to bolt, vomit, or both. At least that was how Sal would have felt if the head of the network had announced that she was possessed by the hand. We shouldn't be enemies, Christina called out. This is the culmination of work that you started. We never could have done it without you. Sal reached down to squeeze Liam's wrist and could feel his muscles shaking. This is not on you, she whispered to him. She had kept her voice low, but apparently the demon could still hear her. Isn't it? Asked Christina. If you hadn't broken out of the virtual beta in Switzerland, maybe we wouldn't have had so many problems in Miracum. That test gave us valuable information, but it was much messier than it had to be. Before Sal could stop him, Liam surged forward. Glimpsing his expression, she realized that he hadn't been shaking with fear, but with rage. In five steps, he was face to face with Christina, so close they were nearly touching. You want me to help you fix this? He asked. I want you to roll beside me. Look upon your works and see how good they are. She breathed back. Liam reached out, caught Christina's hand. There was a flash of light from the demon within her. Sal screamed, no! And then all hell broke loose. If Asante had been more conscious of her surroundings, she would have been reminded of the magical hacking of the archives as part of Mr. Norse's search for the Codex Umbra. As it was, the maelstrom surrounding her barely registered in her consciousness. She had to trust Grace and Manchu to protect her body because the combination of the machine, the spell, and the shroud threatened to consume her mind. In all of her years with the society, she had never felt anything like this. The augmented shroud appeared to sense the capacity for limitless text possessed by the altered copy machine. Linked to it by the spell she had cast, Asanti could see infinite pages filled with the demonic script already duplicated by the machine. The shroud was drawing all of it in, taking the words and overwriting them. Lorem ipsum dolor sit amet, consectetur adipiscing elite, sed do usma tempor. Lorum ipsum is a protective incantation? Or is it merely a neutralizing solution? And if either is the case, are the properties inherited from the original Cicero? Or is there some significance to... Asante felt something in the magic shift, as though her interest had attracted its attention. For a moment, she had the sensation that she and the Shroud were examining each other, two peers of the magical arts. And then it was crushing her, reaching into her mind, filling her with Loram ipsum dolor sit amet. No. As Liam grabbed Christina, he could feel the force of the demon pressing back against his skin. It's not too late to join us, Liam. Even though she whispered, he could still hear her over the clash of Sal fighting Christina's goons. This is where you belong, with us. She carried the demon, but it hadn't taken full control yet. Christina had always been strong, stronger than him, certainly. It's not too late for you, said Liam as he reached into his back pocket. If you come with us, there's still a way out. There is no way out, she hissed, but the voice wasn't entirely hers. You never should have left us. Come home. As he said it, Liam looked into Christina's eyes. In them, he could see a reflection of the infinite black, the void where there was no light, no God, no hope. Show me the vastness, Liam, she had said, and he had done it. This was his work. It was time for him to finish the job. You're right, said Liam. I am a sinner, but I have been redeemed. He brought his hand out from behind his back and dropped Sal's cross, now wired into an EMP generator over Christina's head. One tiny flick of his fingers and, with a crackle, a dazzling arc of electricity lanced out from Christina to the others in her network. They all screamed as one. With the part of her mind that remained, Asante watched in horror as the shroud feasted, consuming all the machine could give it, everything it could take from her. It was growing like a snake filling the world with looping coils, coils that wrapped themselves around her, consuming mind and soul. Asante had always believed magic to be neutral, a tool that could be used for good or ill. But as the snake turned its head toward her and she felt herself caught in the mesmerizing pull of its gaze, she knew that this was a force of its own desires, that cared for her intentions and desires not one whit. As soon as the vortex appeared, Grace felt the world slip into slow motion. It wasn't like when she burned, trading moments from her life in exchange for living more quickly. This was something more objective, like watching a car accident she was powerless to prevent. The shroud affected lighter objects first, pelting Asante with a hail of projectiles on their way to the gaping void. But already the office machines and shelving shook in their places and began to lift. Even a glancing blow from any of them would damage Manchu or Asanti beyond their ability to recover. Manchu had launched himself forward and was hurtling toward Asante and the center of the storm, heedless of the danger. She had to get to the shroud before he did. Grace burned brighter than she ever had before. Asante tried to reach out to close the machine, but her fingers found nothing. She tried to call for help, but her voice was gone. She tried to take her breath, but there was no air, or was it that she had no lungs? Her body must still exist, otherwise all of this wouldn't hurt so much. A black circle grew from the center of her inner vision. The darkness pressed the world away, and just as it was about to disappear, there was a light brighter than anything she had ever seen. It burned like the sun. Manchu's hand brushed against the shroud, and he felt a dread he had never experienced before. Whatever was in the machine was very, very hungry, and evil in a way that dwarfed all of his prior experiences with the demonic. He felt it reaching for him. Then there was a rush of air, and his world exploded into flame. Grace burned with a dizzying intensity that took her breath away. She was so fast and hot that the world was as frozen to her senses as she was to the world the instant her candle went out. She brushed Menchu's fingers away from the shroud and began to lift it. As soon as she touched the machine, she could feel it in her mind. Do you hunger, little one? Let us feast together. Come to me, and you can burn forever. She could feel the lie behind its promise, but that didn't make the temptation go away. One last blaze of glory to save the others, and then, nothing. She could be back in step with time again, the time that had taken everyone she had known and loved, and should have done the same to her long ago. menchu had always said the demons gained power over their victims by promising to grant what they most wanted. Was oblivion what she desired? The foreign missionaries of Grace's childhood had taught her to believe that God was an active participant in the lives of the faithful and that he did nothing without a reason. Although they would have been scandalized by her current occupation, possibly more by the Catholic part than the magic part, they would also have insisted that her life was still part of a larger plan, and that suicide was a sin. As was her rather cavalier attitude toward certain injunctions found in the book of Leviticus. All oh, long dead, little one, and here you are alone. But she wasn't alone. Now, while well, she still had the power to save the people who had made her life, strange as it was, worth living. She reached for the shroud and for the thing it had absorbed from inside the machine. It was time for them to all burn together. Christina's screams took on a frantic pitch. She locked eyes with Liam, and for a moment, the darkness vanished. He didn't see the vastness or the demon. there was only Christina. She wore an expression of utter betrayal. What have you done? She cried. For a moment, the blackness returned to her eyes, and Liam knew that the demon wasn't gone, merely distracted, but it meant Christina had room to fight. Liam reached out and grasped her arms. Leave it, he said. Join me and it'd be free forever. She leaned in and kissed him, and for a moment, Liam thought he had won. Then she pulled back, and he saw she was crying. We could have had forever, she said. But you threw it away. Liam knew that Christina had the strength to defeat the demon. She had the strength to defeat anything, but she had to want to. He saw the moment in her eyes when she let the blackness bubble up and consume her. He was still holding her when she collapsed dead in his arms. Asante looked up from where she had fallen to the floor. The copy machine was a smoking ruin. Manchu nursed a burn on his hand. Grace was, where was Grace? An instant later, Grace appeared, the remnants of the burned shroud falling lifeless from her fingers. Are you all right? menchu asked Santi. She checked her limbs. Most of her various aches were ones she had brought with her. Her mind was clear and whole. Yes, she said. Thank you. Menchu held out a hand to his old friend. Come, he said. Let's go home. Six. Sal wasn't the only one who didn't feel much like talking on the flight back to Rome. She sat next to Liam and left him alone until she'd finished picking at her dinner. He looked up at her gentle poke. Hey, she said. Hey. There was so much she wanted to say to him. You did an amazing job. I'm sorry about Christina. Are you okay? I still care about you. But what came out was, I think we beat your demon pretty good. He swallowed, yeah, we did. Her eye fell on the little brownies still wrapped in plastic on the corner of her dinner tray. She said, I know it isn't anyone's birthday, but it sounded so stupid saying it out loud. Her nerve faltered and she trailed off. What? He asked. She mustered her courage. Do you wanna share my cake? Her reward for bravery was Liam's tiny smile. Yeah, he said, I'd like that. Asante didn't pay much attention to the trip home. She was exhausted, shaken, and couldn't shrug off a feeling that the other shoe had yet to drop. A feeling that was proved correct the moment they'd landed in Rome and were met by two Vatican security guards who marched straight up to Asante and seized her by the arms. Archivist Asante, you are hereby placed under arrest on the charge of thievery, insubordination, and witchcraft. As the others protested, Asante felt herself relax. It had finally happened. The storm that had been brewing for so long was going to break. She found she had to fight to keep herself from smiling. Let's do this. You are listening to Book Burners.
0: Created and produced by Realm. Your portal to another world. Listen away. We've been told for so long that the bees were disappearing. But now, when I
1: see them, well, each time is like a little gift.
0: And do you remember the last time you saw bees?
1: In the orchards, I think.
0: It appears the areas of your brain that had suffered varying levels of atrophy have, in a sense, rebuilt themselves. And this happened very quickly overnight. Anything else I can get for you? I'm actually here looking for someone. Uh, My brother Colin. He was in town about a week ago. Do you know where Cruxmont is? There is nothing in Cruxmont that anyone has ever wanted to find except for plum wine and fruit pies. You shouldn't have come here. Miss town.
1: Leave, just leave! Colin!
0: Don't mind
1: Cruxmont.
0: Bookburners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Mur Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi featuring Jody Redditch-Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolihi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at
1: realm.fm.